when I see news reports of forest fires, as we've been seeing so much of the last few weeks, I often flash back to uh, a memory of one of my summers in college when I was a camp counselor in a forested, heavily forested area down in, uh, I guess they call it Northern California, I'd call it Mid-California, but just north of San Francisco a little ways. And, uh, you know, second, third, fourth night of the camp, and we're, we were in the uh, shower house uh, getting cleaned up from the day's uh, business, myself and a couple of college guys that I was traveling with, and we're doing our thing. And some little junior-age boy comes running in all out of breath and goes, there's a forest fire, there's a forest fire, and we've got to evacuate. And we went, okay, whatever, you know. We, it's like, you know, some junior kid playing a joke on us. And right at that moment, I heard this, this heavy, heavy engine sound right above. And I go outside and I look up and there's an airplane like right there. And in just a few more seconds, he opens up and boom, drops a big load of red borate right over the hill from us. And I went, there's a forest fire. <laughs> and we've got to evacuate. California Department of Forestry did a good job, and we ended up not having to leave our camp. But boy, talk about snapping to attention. Whoosh! From casual end of the afternoon mode to what in the world is going on here? We're coming to a passage in 2 Corinthians 5 today that snaps me to attention. And I hope it does you too, because God has some tough things for us to, to hear and sometimes hard to figure out and hard, harder yet to live out. And one of those passages is right here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken from you. We looked at those two verses last week and understood that the right attitude about sin in ourselves or others is mourning. It's grieving. It's being sad because we're disappointing God. But he goes on now to talk about what the church needed to do toward this person who was flagrant and unrepentant in their sin. For I indeed, verse 3, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Does that get your attention at all? Have you ever been in a church when they stood up and said, we are delivering one of our members to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus? Have you ever heard that done? I can guarantee you that won't happen at our business meeting today but not because it ought not to happen once in a while. This is a fearful passage. This is what God calls the meat of the word, and we're going we're to cut off a big hunk of it and try to understand it today. 
as many times as I have read this in my life, I still come after it saying, can that really mean what it says? What would be so bad that God would tell a church to take such drastic action? This process and this passage is often referred to, um, well, before I get there, let me just say this. Here's what I think God wants us to learn today. Being a Christian involves a serious responsibility to care for one another. Being a Christian involves a serious responsibility. We had fun today so far in church. It was great to hear the high schoolers share not only something fun they did at camp, but something they learned. I love that. I love that they had a great time. I, I, I love loving on the Lord and sharing the Lord's Supper. I love singing His praise. We had fun. And it's not hard to get to thinking that Christianity is all about having fun, but there are some times when it needs to be real serious, out of love for one another. And I believe that's what we're going to understand today. This passage and others like it are often referred to in terms of church discipline and the, the thing that's going to happen here as excommunication. If you're newer to Christianity, let me just explain those terms a bit. I'm not going to use them a whole lot today, but I'd like you to understand how that connects here. A church discipline is that, is that activity of the church whereby we hold one another accountable to live for Christ. When people join our church, you, you, you just heard uh, Jim advertise the membership class. When people join our church, they agree to subject themselves to the, to the accountability of the body. And what that means is, if you suddenly decide that you're going to live in sin, we're going to come talk to you about it. Because we care that much for people. And because God told us to do that. Now, it's not discipline like we're going to come and spank you. It's discipline like, the word discipline in the scripture means training, and we're supposed to help. You know, I spanked my kids when they needed it, a, a, you know, they needed it a few more times, probably, and I gave it to them, but no, I spanked them, you know, but that wasn't all of the discipline. There was training, and so there is a process called church discipline whereby we hold one another accountable, and that's a good thing. It's good for you that people want you to be righteous. And that's what church discipline is. Now, excommunication is the fancy word. You know, it means to, to put somebody out of the church. Typically, in our modern American society, all that means is we drop somebody from the membership. Okay, you were a member, now we just crossed your name off. Typically, what happens is people walk away from a church when there's a problem, and then we cross their name off the membership list. Okay. I don't believe that's what this passage is talking about. I believe it is talking about the broad concept of church discipline, but I, am, I have coined a term that I think fits this passage, and, and, and uh, I intend to use that, and that term is extreme rebuke. Extreme rebuke. I think you would agree that what this passage talks about is extreme in some form. Anytime you're talking about delivering someone to Satan, that's extreme. And the word rebuke means to essentially to tell somebody that's wrong. You've done this, you've done that, that's wrong. Now, the only basis for any of that is God's word. 
This isn't about us making up our own standards and then judging people by that. This is about God's truth and about the Christian life. And so what is the cause? What would be a proper cause for an extreme rebuke? Well, this passage here is is the first one, and it talks about sexual immorality, but it's more than just sexual immorality. This passage is talking about public, flagrant sexual immorality that's carried on without repentance, People sin, people fail, people fall down. There's no doubt about that. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the person who says, I'm living in sin and I do not intend to change. And I tend to walk in here every Sunday morning with my sinful partner and sit right there and you aren't gonna do nothing. That's what this passage is talking about. This is not to say that private immorality is somehow acceptable to God nor should it be to believers. But this man was part of a church and very publicly maintaining a sexual relationship with someone to whom he was not married. And the nature of his previous relationship to her, that is stepmother, made it even more heinous to God and should have made it so to the church. Another cause for extreme rebuke is the promotion of false doctrine. If anyone teaches otherwise, and and the otherwise refers to what Paul has just been sharing in the first six chapters, first five chapters of 1 Timothy. If anybody teaches otherwise and does not agree to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. You know, we need to stop there just for a minute and, 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 and think about our modern cultural attitude toward disagreement, which is what? Oh, well, you know, I don't want to upset anybody's apple cart. Oh, well, that's what he thinks. That's fine. This is what we think. Here, the Apostle Paul says, Either he is teaching God's word, or he is proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. God God seems to draw a line in the sand, doesn't he? Here is God's truth. Here are other ideas. And if somebody is trying to promote other ideas, especially in the church context, they are useless wranglings of men's corrupt minds who are destitute of the truth, who suppress that godliness. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Don't pretend like nothing's wrong. Well, you know, can't do anything about that. Oh, yes, you can. Believers and churches are called on to separate ourselves from those who claim the name of Christ but do not hold to true Bible doctrine. This church is an example of that. This church was founded in the late 1800s by a large church organization which is still in existence under a different name. And they went all over the Northwest planting churches and believed God's truth and preached God's truth But in toward the 1930s and so on, the church group and other church groups, they weren't the only one, began to drift away from God's pure word. 
And the issues then were similar to those now. But the, the real heart of the matter began to be, is this God's word and is it all God's word? Or are there some parts that we just shouldn't care about or talk about? And eventually that's where that church group came to. They said, well, you know, some people think this and some people think that. And, you know, it can't all be God's word. And so churches like ours came to a point where they said, that's not right. Now, before they came to that point, they worked hard. There were subgroups within that group trying to push and say, come back to the truth, come back to the truth. And they wouldn't. So groups left, including this church. That was the right thing to do. When false doctrine became part of that denomination, our church separated from them. That's a godly thing. And and we're not by far the only church that did that. Hundreds and hundreds of churches did that. The promotion of false doctrine is a cause for extreme rebuke. Number three, disobedience to God's commands. Um, From 2 Thessalonians 3. We command you. This is not an optional thing here. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw, separate yourself from every brother who walks in a disorderly way, who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition received from us. That's another way for Paul to say God's truth. He's not saying you're supposed to tie your shoes this way or or button your your shirt this way. He's saying God's truth, not just some human ideas. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Again, uh, that's not sounding like fun. That's sounding like something kind of challenging. Disobedience to God's commands is a basis for separation. Our modern society says live and let live. Our society says, well, let's not be judgmental. But God says, don't give encouragement, don't give the encouragement of fellowship to Christians who walk in sin or teach sin. The next one I've called heretical division. This is is from the word heresy, and heresy is a false belief. You'll see what the passage says here. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. What we just looked at a minute ago was that God says, here is my truth. If people teach falsehood, separate yourself. This passage says some people are going to take their ideas and form their own group and God says when they do that it's wrong you get away from them don't give them the encouragement of fellowship there are some matters in the Bible which are hard to make crystal clear and so we don't make big issues out of those doctrines but there are some issues that are clear and plain And we need to take a proper stand. Now this last command that we're going to look at as an example interfaces with all of the other ones. And it's the lack of repentance. The word repentance has been used a lot in modern day and in modern 
in, in contemporary Christianity in the last few years, it's become a, a popular word again. And I do believe some people have misunderstood it. Some people say that what it means to be repentant, it, it means to feel sorry about your sin. Now, I think you should feel sorry about your sin. But what the word repentance actually means is it means to change. It means to change, first of all, your thinking, and second of all, your behavior. And so that if a person, if, if a person you know, has a sin in their life, step one is to confess. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you encounter sin, you need to say, God, that was wrong. That's what it means to confess, to agree with God. Step two is to repent. I was walking this way in my sin. I know it's wrong. I've confessed it to God. Now I'm going to walk this way, God's way. I've gone from one way to the other. That's what it means to repent. When we use the word repentance in regard to salvation, what it means is, I used to think Jesus was just a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. Now I know he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now I know that I have to believe in him. I used to think I could save myself. You see, all of those changes of thinking go into believing in Christ. I used to think I'm not a sinner. Now I know I am a sinner. That's what it means to repent of sin. In the context of what we've been looking at, repentance has to do with, am I going to acknowledge my sin and turn and go in righteousness? And we'll look at this Matthew 18 passage in just a little bit, uh, more of it in just a minute. But here, if a person refuses to listen to the rebuke that's given to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Push him out. Leave him alone. Now, coming back to 1 Corinthians 5, I want to ask this question. How does God expect this extreme rebuke, this separating one Christian from another, a church from a Christian, how does he expect it to happen? Look, look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3. I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged. As though I were present, I've judged him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. The process of extreme rebuke involves the whole church. It is the church gathered. I believe what you're going to see as we finish this study today, and I hope you have began to understand it from all of the New Testament, the, the church is not just a collection of believers. There is a uniqueness to the church gathered as part of the body of Christ that makes what we do significant. The little saying, the sum is greater than the total of its parts, is very true here. Turn with me to Matthew 18, please, because we want to spend some time in this passage, which is very much a parallel to 1 Corinthians 5. Extreme rebuke is an action taken by a church 
And given that Paul mentions the authority of Christ in 1 Corinthians 5, we can assume he was referring to Christ's words in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. When there is sin... It usually is between two people or one person has committed it on his own and somebody else has found out about it and they've gone to him and God says what you should do is go to that person and say, brother, sister, this is wrong. Can I help you make it right with God? Okay. Do you find that easy to do? <laughs> I don't know anybody who finds that easy. If, if those who might say they find it easy might have a, some kind of perverse joy in knowing that others are wrong. It is not an easy thing to do. Why is it so important? It's so important because what should be happening is concern for the godliness of a brother or a sister. Frankly, if you're going to this person just to establish that you are right and they are wrong, your heart's in the wrong place. We need to go to people when there is sin out of concern for them. And see, what underlies this whole process, and we'll be coming back to this in a minute, is this important truth. God uses us to accomplish his work. Now, without doubt, the Holy Spirit speaks into the minds and hearts of Christians. He says, that's wrong, you need to change. Without doubt, God does that directly, but he also does it through us. I mean, couldn't God have had some divine megaphone where on Sunday mornings, all over the earth, people hear, listen to me! And there'd be no churches and no preachers. Couldn't God have done that? Sure he could have done that. But he hasn't. He put this church here and he put me here and others here to speak God's word. And he's put you in certain circles, your family, your part of the church, wherever. And he wants to use you to help people be righteous. Verse six, and he ends verse 15 saying, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. A personal matter calls for a personal action. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. An unrepentant response calls for help. Now, let me take just a little bit of a rabbit trail here and say this married person, child, person in a close relationship. This is not just about what goes on in the church building. This is not just about individuals out there. It's about all of us in every facet of our life. If there is something going wrong in your family and the sinful person won't listen, you need to ask someone to help. This is God's method of bringing change to people's lives. 
This is Jesus himself saying, when this kind of thing happens, here's what to do. For us to stand and and, and wring our hands about our relational situation and go, well, there's nothing I can do, is a lie and a dodge of God's responsibility. If it's hard to confront somebody, it's doubly hard to take somebody with you to do it. An unrepentant response calls for help. Now look at verse 17. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. An unrepentant response at this stage calls for more help. Now, I believe Iola, who's not with us today, she's in the frail time of life, and sometimes she can be here. Oh, Iola, there you are, I'm sorry. (laughs) Didn't you tell me once? Didn't you, I hope you can remember, but you talked about church discipline in Africa, and they would stand up and say, brother so-and-so has been angry with his wife, and we need to talk to him about it. Is that the, you shared that kind of thing with me. In one church in particular. In one church in particular. If you knew the church was going to talk about your uncontrolled anger, Would that motivate you to get right with God? Now, some of you are saying, no. Oh, friend, I want to step away from you because you're headed for something worse. I had a a, a wonderful sister in another church come to me and say, my husband... And there was a clear thing of sin, and I said, you tell your husband I'm coming to visit. She said, he'll be mad when he finds out I've told you about this. And they lived in a far place. They, and in two days, he was sitting in my office confessing his sin without a word from me. You know Why? Because this is God's method of accomplishing change in people's life. Friends, the whole basis of this teaching from Christ, from God through Paul, is this. Sin is serious. High school kids, help me out. Wasn't that one of the things you said you learned? One sin's as good as another. One sin's as bad as another. Yeah. Sin is sin is sin. The fear of God, man, I I think Ben Jacobs must have been ringing the bell preaching on the fear of God and on sin. You go, Ben. Great young man. An unrepentant response calls for more help. If he will not hear you, tell it to the church. You know how I, what I take away from this? I don't ever want to be in that place. Not the place of rebuking, the place of being rebuked. I read this and I go, God help me never be there. I've been reading about David in 2 Samuel and I knew that part was coming where he sins greatly and I knew about Nathan's going to rebuke him and I and I you know it's like knowing the end of the movie and you think oh can't there be a different ending 
And my takeaway from it in my personal devotions is, God, I don't want to be there. Oh yeah, David was uh, forgiven and David was restored. I don't want that. I want to say no to sin out of the fear of God. Could it be that part of the fear of God is fearing his methods? If I truly fear God, I'll say, I don't want the church talking about my sin. An unrepentant response calls for more help. And then look at the next verse. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, think about the Jewish people Jesus was talking to. What did they think of Roman tax collectors? How much close personal fellowship did they have with Roman tax collectors? Zero. And so what he's saying is, break your relationship with them. He's not saying to hate them. Because... 1 Corinthians 5 said we should be mourning, we should be grieving about the sin. But he says, break your relationship with that person. Go back with me to 1 Corinthians 5, please. You see, the Corinthian situation was already at step four. I have no problem believing that since Paul wrote the inspired word of God, And since he was an apostle of Christ, that these first three steps of rebuke had already taken place. And so we understand that an extreme rebuke is what is ahead for this unrepentant sinner. And it's something only done by the church gathered. It's done by the church gathered. The second part of of this extreme rebuke is judging. And again, You know, this whole process runs counter to our culture. We're supposed to live and let live, and we're not supposed to judge anybody. Everybody gets to live their own way. Look what Paul does. Verse 3, even though I'm not there, I've already judged him. And you think, man, how can that be? I think Warren Wiersbe, who is... It was a, uh, he's a well-known pastor to those of us who have lived for a few years. He summarized this in his commentary really well. While Christians are not to judge one another's motives, Matthew 7, 1 to 5, or their ministry, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that is how they conduct the ministry, we are certainly expected to be honest about each other's conduct or behavior or actions. Now you may say, well, where's the scripture for that? Well, here's one to begin with. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. How can you go to somebody who's in sin unless you're able to determine who's in sin and who's not in sin? Well, we're not to judge motives as in, I'm trying to figure out what you're thinking, but we do judge behavior based on the scripture. And this man in 1 Corinthians 5, let's read it again, sexual immorality that a man has his father's wife. Can you judge whether that's right or wrong? Is that 
rocket science? We're not judging his motive. We're not saying why he did it. We're just saying, look, by God's standard, that's wrong. That's the kind of judging we are supposed to do. We get hung up on the word judging, call it analyzing, call it figuring out, call it what you want. But in the very chapter, in this very chapter here, Matthew 7, Jesus starts out saying, now be careful how you judge. What he really says is you're going to be judged the same way you judge. So be careful how you do that and get that stick out of your own eye before you take one out of somebody else's. But in that very chapter, we read these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Does that involve judging? Yes, it does. It involves evaluating what people are teaching, how they're living, and of course, are ultimately, our model for judging behavior is Jesus himself. This is the, the episode with the woman caught in adultery. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and what? Sin no more. I think Jesus was saying, you were sinning. Isn't that making a judgment call about her life? Yes, it is. From what he heard from these men, that was an obvious and easy judgment. She had been committing adultery. So he says, go and sin no more. Now, I I, I say he's our model for judging because he's not trying to be judgmental. He's not trying to be mean. He's not trying to tear her down. He is trying to get her to live without sin. Was her lifestyle, answer me this class, was her lifestyle helping her? No, no. Now, no doubt she was trying to meet some short-term desire. Maybe she was trying to make some money. Who knows what she was trying to do? I can't judge her motives but I know that her lifestyle was not good for her. And ultimately, where would her lifestyle take her, class? To hell. If you are an unrepentant sinner all the way to the end, you're headed for hell. And so it is a wonderful, gracious, loving thing for Jesus to say, I'm not going to condemn you, but go and sin no more. (laughs) He, was, he made judgments about people, and he tells us to do the same thing. Not so that we're better than them. That is not the point. It's not the point for our church to say, we don't join hands with churches who preach error, and somehow we're better than them. That is not the point. The point is caring for people and being God's tool to help motivate them to get right. Jesus was gracious and kind, but firm about what was right and wrong. His biggest rebukes came for the arrogantly sinful religious people. He was always gentle with humble sinners like this woman, and yet he called sin, sin. 
As we shift our attention back to 1 Corinthians 5, we come to that part of the text that scares us most. If we have rebuked and no one listened, we've taken people with us and no one listens, we've told it to the church and no one listens, we're left with verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And don't skip over that phrase. We're going to come back to it here. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now we're instructed to do, if we've gathered, if we've judged, if we've rebuked, and we're all the way to this step four, we're coming to what I want to call releasing. And I will tell you right now, nobody else wrote this this way, and I'm not saying that I've got something brand new. I'm just telling you, this helps me to grasp the concept here. I can't tell Satan what to do. Okay? There's some folks out there in the world who say we can bind Satan. We can bind devils and we can do all this stuff. Nope. Only God can do that. But there's something I can do with someone who calls himself a believer. A believer. In order to understand what delivering to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, we need to think about... Um, we need to think about a couple of these phrases and I need to ask you a couple of questions to get you to think this through, okay? Because what we're tempted to do when we read verse four and five, we're tempted to think, okay, this person has been really bad and so we're gonna deliver them to Satan and they, by their suffering, are gonna earn a place in heaven, okay? Now you go, oh, well, no, Pastor Dave, that ain't right. But see, sometimes we're tempted to think that way. There is a big church out there who teaches that way, that you need to get cleaned up after you die so that you can earn your spot in heaven. And God says, no, that's not the case. How do we gain eternal life, class? Faith in Christ. There you go. And so... This passage is not somehow talking about how this man is going to get saved or gain an entrance into heaven. That is not what he's talking about. Now, another possible meaning would be this. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Somehow, what we are going to do is going to mean that the devil will take the man's life. If that were what it meant, how would that help him get to heaven? Well, it would speed it up. That's not what it's talking about. It's not what it's talking about. Here's what it's talking about. Here is the underlying concept. Prolonged living in sin is a strong indicator of the lack of salvation. Now, be careful with this. This has become real popular in the last 10, 15 years. Oh, they're not saved. Oh, they're not saved. And People have drawn certain standards about, you know, that are not biblical. Be careful about that. It is not my intent to judge anyone's salvation. This is for you to consider for you. But it underlies this process. Prolonged living in sin is a strong indicator 
I can't know what's going on in somebody's soul, but I can know what 1 John 1, 5-6 says. This is the message which we've heard from him, and we declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we are in a relationship, the word fellowship means partnership, if we say that we have a relationship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. If you study the balance of especially 1 John 1, but all of 1 John, what it's saying is this. Let me boil it right down. Either your lifestyle is righteous, generally so, or your lifestyle is sinful, continuously so. Nobody walks perfectly. I am not sinless. You are not sinless. That is not what God is saying. In fact, if you go down just... Three more verses, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Verse eight, if if anybody says, I don't have any sin, he's kidding himself. But the point is this, if you're saying, I walk with the Lord, I walk with the Lord, and I'm having an ongoing, unrepentant sexual relationship with my stepmother, you might be kidding yourself. And so the question, The application, first and foremost, is for you to look inside and say, have I been kidding myself about my definition of who is going to heaven? Because prolonged living in sin is a strong indicator of the lack of salvation. I don't go around telling people, you're not saved, you're not saved, you're not saved. That's not my business. But I'm telling you, when I look at people, and when I pray for people, I consider this truth. Does their lifestyle show me that they are walking with the Lord, or does their lifestyle show me something else? And you know why I think that way? Because I don't want to let anybody go to hell happy. Oh, we can't judge. Oh, great. Well, then you just stand back and watch them go right to the pit. You just stand back and watch their life swirl in difficulty. Well, hey, can't say anything. That's their thing. Remember what I said to begin this sermon? Being a Christian involves a serious responsibility for one another. Here is a church member, 1 Corinthians 5, living in open flagrant sin and unrepentant. Does that sound like a godly man? Does it sound like a real Christian? You see, a real Christian, when you confront them about sin, they may not conquer it in the next five minutes, but their response will be like David. When Nathan came to him and he he used this parable to say that David had committed adultery and taken this man's wife, and David got so worked up when Nathan gave that parable, and Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. David went, you're right. That's why he's called the friend of God. Not because he was perfect, but because his heart was with God. And a real Christian responds to sin by saying, you're right. They humbly admit they're wrong. And if they're growing in Christ, they'll take steps to turn from that sin. If they're really smart, they'll say, would you help me? So his sinful lifestyle can only mean one of a couple things. Did I put it there? Let me see. No, I didn't. Shoot. It can only mean one of a couple things. First of all, 
this man might have falsely been trusting in the fact that he said a prayer of salvation once. Man, let me, let me be just as kind as I can be because I said that prayer of salvation when I was four years old. And I would tell you honestly now, was I saved before I was 19 and when I really came to grips with what it meant to live for God and I laid down my life at God's feet and said, okay, whatever, it's all yours. I think I was saved between those two points, but I don't know. And what I want to say to you is just because you said a prayer once does not guarantee you're headed for heaven. If you said a prayer and if you really believed in your heart, your life should have started to change. And even though you're not perfect or you're not Billy Graham or his wife or anybody else, you're moving in the right direction. This man may have been falsely trusting in the fact that he said a prayer one time. Or the other possibility is this man was in church for the wrong reasons. Oh, he came to church, he said the words, he did the deeds. You know, maybe it was business contacts or social connection or who knows what. And so what did God want them to do with such an unrepentant sinner? God told the church to come to an agreement to ask God to remove his protection from this believer for the purpose of motivating repentance. Let me say that again. I believe, let me put it this way, I believe what it means to deliver someone to Satan for the destruction of his flesh is this. The church agrees to ask God to remove his protection for the purpose of motivating repentance. Look back with me at these words in Matthew 18. If the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Does that get your attention at all? He is saying that when the church comes together and they consider this deep, significant matter of sin and righteousness and they come to an agreement and say, the brother is wrong, the sister is wrong, and we are together putting them out. And somehow, when that happens, it doesn't just happen on earth, it happens in heaven. That God is up there taking note of what we do. Not that God is going, oh, I hope they do the right thing. But that God is moving through us. He wants to use us as the visible representation of his presence and of his disapproval of their life. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth (coughs) concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them. I know we use this a lot about prayer in general need to be careful about that because what it's really talking about is the church gathered doing God's work together. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Wow. God is telling us that we have to act in his stead or in his place and when we do, he joins us in that act. Does, Does that put the fear of God in you at all? 
Now think about this. When, if these people did what Paul asked, and I think they did because in 2 Corinthians, I think we hear about the end of this story, which has a good ending, by the way, that the person repented. He said, you release this person into Satan's domain. God calls the world outside Satan's domain. He's called the God of this age. This is Christ's domain. And there's a sense in which believers are protected here. If, If you have a problem, if you have a difficulty, if you're struggling to live for the Lord, we are here for you. But when you rebelliously, arrogantly refuse to repent, God says we should together say we are releasing this person into Satan's domain. And God says when we, when we release, that God releases. What does that mean? Look at this. Look at Satan and Job. Satan said, does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge, a fence of protection around him? And around all that he has on every side. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Do you understand that God has built a fence around his people? Satan only can get to you. And he only got to Job physically, by the way. He can only get to you when God opens the gate. And God will open the gate. Job was the most righteous man on the earth. So don't think that that trial and difficulty is a punishment. It's not. It's God's refining. And there are times when God opens the gate to make us more godly. But apparently there are times when God says, you folks on earth need to come to an agreement and speak to this unrepentant sinner and say that is wrong and we are releasing you into Satan's domain. And when we do that, God does that. And when God does that, look at verse five. The destruction of the flesh is the goal. I don't believe that's talking about physical body. I think the word, you know, the word flesh is often used in the New Testament as a synonym for the sinful nature You see, there are only a couple of possibilities here. Once he is released into Satan's domain, once God opens the gate on that hedge, and Satan goes, goody, I am going to take after this person, and when I'm done, like he tried to do to Job, he is going to curse God. And so he throws at him whatever he can. You know, a car accident, a you know, a sickness, he throws all kinds of, you know, job loss, whatever he can throw, he throws, he throws, he throws. And if this person is a genuine believer, he will call out for help. And when he comes back to the body of Christ going, help me, help me, you go, have you repented of that sin? Well, no. I'm not ready for that. Lord bless you, brother. Ooh, that's some cold-hearted stuff. Or is it some warm-hearted stuff? Here's a guy who wants to be comfortable in his sin. Are we going to gather around him and circle the wagon and say, oh, let's help the poor brother out. He's living in sin. We need to encourage him so maybe he'll come to the Lord. That's our American Christian way. And God says, you let go. And you separate and you stand back. 
And when he gets ready to get right with me, then you wrap him up in your arms and bring him in. You see, that's what this verse says. If anybody does not obey our word in this epistle, note him, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed yet. Don't count him as an enemy. Don't hate him. Admonish him as a brother. Keep admonishing him. Keep admonishing him. Now, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I think I've given you something to think about today. And I think some of you are, are, are sitting here going, well, that could really get overused. Yep. Is it possible it's been underused? Is it possible in our desire to be nice and to make things easy, we have let people slip away in sin and their sin continues and their life doesn't get better and doesn't show honor to God? And this part about coming to to the day of Christ is is like this. When, When we see Christ face to face, how will it be? If we let them go on in sin, they are going to come to Christ like this. Because in that moment, they're going to know how wrong they were, and they're going to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is that how you want them to meet Christ? I don't want to meet Christ that way. And so we, we join with God in this tremendous work and they get right with God and on the day of Christ, they're ready. They're ready. Mm. The theme that I have chosen, that I have seen in 1 Corinthians that's guiding my messages is maturity. And so they're all titled, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be. And today's title is, I Want to Be a Lifeguard. What does a lifeguard do? He or she enforces the rules of the pool. Why? For the safety of the swimmers. It's not for the lifeguard's benefit. Don't run. You'll fall and crack your head open. Don't dive when someone's in front of the board. Don't go in over your head unless you can swim. Don't harass the other swimmer. You know, on and on and on. And what does the lifeguard do when the swimmers won't obey the rules? Out of the pool. And does he do it because he hates them? No, because he doesn't want to fish them out of the bottom of the pool. What do you call the lifeguard who is uninterested in the safety of the swimmers? Fired. Exactly. Exactly. Friends, God has called us to be lifeguards for each other in the body of Christ. Comfortable? No. Fun? Hardly. Important? Vital. Vital. Heavenly Father, help us. This is a hard truth today. I hope we never need to use it, Father. I hope that you will just Put your fear in us as individuals so that we walk with you today. But Father, for the good of our brothers and sisters, help us to do those things that are best for them. I pray in your name, amen.